Listeners, readers, welcome to the Foxed page, where we dive deep into the very best books. You'll come away with a richer understanding of the text at hand, all while learning to read everything a little better. Quick note before we get rolling, for the first time ever, I had some uh, technical difficulties when recording this. We had a little bit of a situation where some of the audio was not captured. So as you're listening, there may be a couple of different points uh, where you have an inkling that maybe something is missing because in fact something is missing. There are just a couple of little uh, connective sentences that might or might not be there. But the lecture is still chock full of all kinds of excellent information because honestly, talking about a masterpiece like small things like these um, just just has to be a great thing. So apologies in advance for a couple of little, um, you know, missing items. But uh, thank you for your patience and enjoy. Some of you have already listened to Claire Keegan's uh, Foster, or my thoughts about Claire Keegan's Foster. And honestly, I was thinking to myself, I just don't, you know, maybe it's going to feel repetitive. Maybe there's just like too much, um, you know, Claire Keegan happening at the Fox page. But when I started to dig into small things like these, I realized I absolutely had to go ahead and, uh, you know, share this little journey with you. One thing is um, I do... I think I'm going to stand by this. I, I do like Foster slightly better. I think Foster is maybe just like the slightly better novel for me, uh, or novella, I should say. But um, the small things like these, which, oh my gosh, if you listen to Foster, I can never remember small things like these. Like the whole time I'm like, her other book, her other book. I can never remember it. Um, now I can remember it, but I still kind of trip over the title. Um, but when I reread Small Things Like These for the second time, I really um, came to appreciate a lot of the nuance that just for whatever reason um, was was just not quite as impressive to me as the first time I read Foster. So I'm very happy to dig in. As always, uh, the, the best piece of advice I can give you if you're wanting to like, you know, learn how to read better is simply to pay more attention. And that begins, you know, with the very front of the book and all the way through to the very back of the book. So we'll be talking today about the cover. We'll be talking about the title. We'll be talking about the opening few pages. We are then going to dive into narrative voice the sort of stance that our narrator is taking here, which is very important. Uh, we're going to talk about figurative language. Then we're going to talk a little bit about silence and complicity. Then we're going to talk about the importance of Christmas. I wish right now that I could be somewhere where it is snowing. Um, I am not anywhere where it is snowing. I'm in California. Um, so, I mean, honestly, it's like 80 degrees outside. I don't know. Not really. Um, and it is unusual because today is what? Today is October 16th. So, um... I am very excited to dive in. I just wish perhaps that that it was snowing outside my house as well. Okay, so the first thing I will say about uh, this amazing little gem of a novella is that I really like the title. So Claire Keegan in interviews has said that she's not in fact great at titles. And I don't, um, you know, I, I actually really uh, sympathize with that because back in my writing days, I was never good with titles. I think it's one of these things that certain people have a certain gift for it. And it was not a gift that I had. But um, I, I loved hearing Claire Keegan's sort of wrestling with this idea of title because she and I actually look the same way for titles, which is simply that she will finish a work and then she'll go kind of hunting back through the prose for a series of words that will be, in fact, a great title. So um, this is what she did with small things like these. And so I really appreciate, actually, this um, this use of, of uh, the text in terms of finding a title. 
It's just, God, it's such a treat to go back and look at the prose because in fact, the prose at these three junctures when the title arrives um, or arises in the text are just so incredibly um, illustrative of how unbelievably great this prose is. So if we look at page 10, Pages 10 and 11 is kind of the first time that we see this idea of small things and small things like these kind of arising from the text. So we have uh, Bill Furlong and it says, Sometimes Furlong, seeing his girls going through the small things which needed to be done, genuflecting in the chapel or thanking a shopkeeper for the change, felt a deep private joy that these children were his own. Aren't we the lucky ones, he remarked to Eileen in bed one night. There's many that are badly off. So we have this mention of small things, right, at this, um, you know, on page 10 of the book. So we have like this little um, notion of small things. And in this case, it's because Bill Furlong is really appreciating these, these little kind of rituals and these little, uh, um, you know, actions, these little tasks that his daughters take on and that his five daughters and, and really bring a lot of pride to him. And it, interestingly, you know, here they're genuflecting, which is just kneeling before you enter into the pew um, at a Catholic church. And the other is uh, giving money back, giving change back to a merchant. And in both of these cases, those are extremely important. So Catholicism is going to, uh, you know, bending the knee to the Catholic church is something that is very, very central to this little novella. And this idea of, of monetary exchange and this idea of, of uh, you, you know, well, monetary exchange is also going to be very important. So these are small things that are occurring. And he's saying that these small things, in fact, um, are, you know, he's saying that they give him a lot of joy. So there's quite a bit of uh, you know, attention being paid to paid to small things here. So then, a little bit further down on page ten, uh, he says, Bill Furlong says to his wife Eileen, Mixinet's little chap was out on the road again today, foraging for sticks. And then across the the the, the road, across the page here on um, page eleven, it says, uh, Eileen is saying, Sinnet was stocious at the phone box on Tuesday. Stocious being drunk. The poor man, Furlong said, whatever ails him, drink is what ails him. So then we get into this conversation. They move from the little things that the girls are, uh, you know, the small things that the girls are doing that bring him pride. And they move on to this idea of people who are suffering, people who are having a hard time. So, um, you know, you can see if you're looking at the YouTube channel, you can see here, this is page 10. We have this notion of small things. But by the time we have gotten over to page 11 here, where we're going to have the complete form of the title, the, the sense of it has shifted because here in the beginning, the very first mention is about the sort of pride he's feeling in his girls. But by the time we have the full version of it, what he is thinking about, in fact, are, are people who are having a hard time. So at the bottom of page 11 here, some nights Furlong lay there with Eileen going over small things like these. So the small things like these that end up preoccupying him are things like the fact that uh, that Mick Sinnott um, is really fallen on hard times because presumably he's an alcoholic and Furlong is feeling sympathetic and Eileen is not feeling so sympathetic, which is another uh, thing that we're going to have play out during the book. Um, and you also have this sense of poverty. You have this sense of people suffering, people having a hard time, and, and Bill Furlong being acutely aware of people suffering. And these are these small things 
small things like these, which both um, come to capture the idea of the girls and these sort of lovely small things that they do that inspire pride and joy in their father. But then also this idea of um, the small things like these being the fact that people are suffering. So right from the beginning, it's much like Foster, you have this kind of multivalence, the word ends up having um, the title ends up having a lot of different sort of nuance and meaning. We see it crop up again on page 107. So this is a very important point because it's one of the few times we see Bert Bill Furlong in his memory interacting with his mother who died when he was 16. So, um, sorry, 12. She got pregnant when she was 16 and she died when she was 28 and Bill was 12. So, um, the reason I mention that is because on the Booker uh, Prize winner's website, they say something about how um, the mother died when she was 16. And I, who really love nothing more than a Booker Prize winner, I was just like, wait, how are you people being so sloppy? Like, this is the Booker Prize committee. How come you have such a sloppy thing on your website? Um, but in fact, I went back and checked and she got pregnant at 16. She dies 12 years later. Okay, so, um, but we have this interaction with her son here. And she had slapped him too sometimes for being bold or talking out of turn or leaving the lid off the butter dish. But those were, but those things were only small. So it's not exactly a verbatim thing. It's not small things like these, but it's another kind of morphing of the title. So if you're paying attention to the title, which you should be, then you'll see these, these other kind of iterations of it cropping up. And again, this is 107, we're getting toward the end of the novella, but it's still so significant. So what she is punishing him for um, is being bold and talking out of turn, which are exactly the things that this novella is hinging on. We have this, this sort of question of whether or not he is going to stand up against the forces that be, or whether he is not going to do that. So um, we have this idea from, from a very young age that his mother was reinforcing this idea that he needed to stay silent and he needed to be complicit uh, in anything uh, that, that, that would be even remotely threatening. Okay, so again, we have this iteration, those things were only small. And then on page 113, this is the last iteration that we are going to look at uh, before we jump into the beginning of the book. So on page 113, he thought of Mrs. Wilson, Mrs. Wilson being the woman who uh, allows her, her, his mother's employer and his mother's employer, Mrs. Wilson, allows them to stay in the house even um, after his mother becomes pregnant. He thought of Mrs. Wilson, of her daily kindnesses, of how she had corrected and encouraged him, of the small things she had said and done and had refused to do and say, and what she must have known, the things which, when added up, amounted to a life. It's so lovely. And again, here we are toward the end of the novel. In fact, uh, you know, it's like the penultimate page of the novel, the novella. And we have this real sort of loading up of the title and this kind of reprise of the title that these small things, small things like these, whether we are talking about the things that bring pride, whether um, we're talking about being compassionate to other people suffering, whether we're talking about being generous like Mrs. Wilson, those small things uh, are what add up to a life. So for someone 
I'm thinking of Claire Keegan here, someone who says that she's not great with titles, she may not be great with coming up with them beforehand or coming up with something super inventive, but when she is mining the text for the title, she's doing a great job. I mean, this is really a, a title that resonates throughout, both at the beginning and at the very end, and that is sort of shifting as we go in a way that's really significant and beautiful. I'm not going to um, spoil anything within the first Gosh, I don't know. I'm going to try not to spoil anything the whole time. How about that? I'll try to do that, but I, I can't guarantee anything. If I do, I might bleep it out myself like I do on some of my um, some of my other things, but uh, hopefully, hopefully it won't come to that. Okay, so we're going to dive in now past the um, beautiful cover and we're going to get to the dedication. This story is dedicated to the women and children who suffered time in Ireland's mother and baby homes and Magdalene laundries. So this is a very interesting thing to me. She gives us this kind of dedication, um, but we don't have a good sense yet of what exactly she is talking about. We don't really know what is, you know, if you're me and you are American and you're 54, you might not know what Ireland's mother and baby homes are. And I certainly didn't know what the Magdalene laundries were. I got a sense. I mean, I could guess what the mother and baby homes were all about um, in a, a strictly Catholic, well, yeah, a Catholic country. Um, and then it, this idea of the Magdalene laundries, again, was a bit of a, a bit of a mystery. So, but what's great is that we, not until the very end of the book, if you read this, um, you know, the way a normal person should, which is from the beginning to the end, you find out in the end what exactly is happening with that afterward that is chock full of really interesting citations and really um, fairly damning information. But at this point, we don't really know what is going to be happening. I, of course, went and read the uh, acknowledgments because I always like to find out like who who these people's agents are and who they're, you know, I like literally I'm such a weird literary groupie that I'll like read through the acknowledgments just to see like if they're hanging out with any other writers. Like I'm like, oh, my God, wait, is Claire Keegan hanging out with Anna Burns? incredible writer of, of, of uh, Milkman. You know, it's like that kind of groupy thing is happening. So I like to look at that stuff. And then, you know, there's there's that kind of afterward or addendum or whatever it is. And so of course I read that. So I did have a sense uh, before diving in, I, I had a little more information, I think, than your average reader might. And actually that, it didn't really matter to me because I don't read for like suspense and plot and stuff. But it was, um, it, it, I think it would have been maybe a little cooler to not know what was, um, you know, sort of happening, what was happening in the text here. It's also interesting. Um, and for Mary McKay, teacher. So um, Claire Keegan was born in 1968. I'm pretty sure that's right. She's 55. She was born in Ireland, um, fairly close to where this takes place, kind of in the middle of Ireland in from the eastern coast. So she was born there um, and was the youngest in a very large Irish Catholic family, then went to uh, New Orleans and went to Loyola University, good Catholic university, I imagine, from the name, and met Mary McKay there. Mary McKay uh, sounds pretty Irish to me. And I don't know if Mary McKay, I don't know. She's also apparently an, an Olympic swimmer. Um, there was something cute on her website that said something like um, she gave up like Olympic swimming because she couldn't read while she was swimming, which is like a little bit cute and a little twee, but also so rad. Like that's like, I mean, that's, that's why I don't swim. 
Just kidding. That is not why I don't swim. I don't swim because I don't love to swim. Um, but it would also take me away from reading. So Mary McKay teacher, um, it turns out if you look at Claire Keegan's websites about the fiction courses she gives, that uh, Professor McKay, who is now Professor Emerita at um, Loyola in New Orleans, she gives some summer courses in there was actually one on the short story that she was giving in Ireland in like 2021 or something. And I was just like bereft because I would have been there. I mean, 2021, probably not. I probably would not have been there. I would not have risked my life and flown to Ireland, but sounds like it would have been a very, very cool course on the short story. Okay. So we have Mary McKay teacher, and then we're going to move on. Um, and this is this very important proclamation of the Irish Republic 1916. So um, they they were given kind of, uh, you know, sovereignty or however you would call that. They were made a, um, a, 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 you know, a republic, a country unto their own. They were given independence from Britain in 1918. So this is the proclamation they made in 1916. I'm fairly certain that's correct. Um, if you're going to like quote me or something, maybe check first just to be nice because I'm not totally sure. Okay, but this is what it says. The Irish Republic is entitled to and hereby claims the allegiance of every Irishman and Irish woman. The Republic guarantees religious and civil liberty, equal rights and equal opportunities to all its citizens, and declares its resolve to pursue the happiness and prosperity of the whole nation and of all of its parts, cherishing all of the children of the nation equally. So the fact that this is taken out of the proclamation and the fact that it ends with cherishing all of the children of the nation equally. So if we have that, and that is the ending, which means there's a lot of emphasis on that last part, the idea of treating all of the children equally. We have talked about this, um, I was going to say ad nauseum, and it's not like that makes it sound very tiresome. But we talk a lot about the fact that the ending words in a um, sentence and certainly in a paragraph and certainly in a chapter, they have a lot of weight because all of the force of the paragraph or sentence are, are sort of building toward it. And then even if it's just a sentence and it's only hanging out you know, in your brain for the space between the period and the capital letter of the next sentence, there is a little, there's like a brief gap where your mind gets to kind of stick with that word for a moment. So here the idea of equally being the last word of this little uh, excerpt from the proclamation and the children being treated equally kind of gives you a sense that um, that's maybe what Claire Keegan is going to be taking up during the course of this novel. And if you put that together with the mother and children um, hospitals from their homes, it's not a hospital, their homes, um, the mother and baby homes and the Magdalene laundries from the page before, you can start piecing together that one of the things she is going to highlight here is uh, the experience of uh, the children in the in the nation. Um, we're going to spend a bit of time talking about figurative language because so many of the details that Claire Keegan is supplying are really working overtime. They're often symbolic, or they um, have to do. There's some sort of pathetic fallacy where nature is mirroring, um, you know, the emotions or your foreshadowing or, um, you know, it's a, a really beautiful metaphor or simile. So we're, we're going to talk about that usage of language first, but it's, um, it's, it's important to think about this as being spare and, and very brief in the same way that Foster is. Okay, diving in. In October, there were yellow trees. Then the clocks went back the hour and the long November winds came in and blew and stripped the trees bare. 
Okay, so beautiful. So we have this idea of, um, you know, we're, we're deep into the fall. It's October. I would imagine October in Ireland is particularly, um, you know, chilly and fall-like as opposed to California. Um, and, but And this idea of yellow trees, it's very um, sort of, it sounds like a, almost like a child narrator. You know, we have this idea of, of like a very kind of basic kind of description, a very simplistic and, and, and sort of um, stripped down kind of narration. Um, but then the clocks went back the hour. So there is something right away that feels very Irish to me. The clocks went back the hour. Um, you know, maybe in the United States, we'd say, you know, the clocks were set back an hour or they fell back an hour either, either even. Wow, sorry. Or um, we set the clocks back an hour. Um, it's it's the idea of um, the clocks went back the hour. There's something in that cadence to me. I can't, I don't, I can't pinpoint it because I'm, um, I'm learning Irish on Duolingo, but um, my Irish is not good enough to understand why that would have come from the original Irish um, and would be affecting this uh, instantiation of English here. So, then the clocks went back the hour and the long November winds came in and blew and stripped the trees bare. So you have this idea of October and November passing very quickly. We're beginning with October in this declarative sentence and then very quickly November's coming through and it's stripping the trees bare. So um, trees, whenever you come across a tree, certainly when you come across like an apple or a fig tree, um, you need to think about Eden and you need to think about um, the Garden of Eden and the fact that trees and, uh, you know, apple trees in particular or fig trees are really very much about the tree of knowledge and they're about this idea of of, of original sin and this idea that, um, you know, because Adam, uh, you know, ate from the tree of knowledge, he gained knowledge and that knowledge was in fact that he was, you know, flawed and naked and full of sin. And in a Catholic country, there is very much this sense of, um, you know, having been born with sins and needing to sort of uh, get going, get going right away on all of the cleansing, all of the communion and all of the baptism and all of these things to sort of, um, you know, uh, cleanse even a tiny baby of, of all their sins that they're born with. So the idea of these yellow trees, um, it's, it's not, you know, red trees, uh, you know, it's not trees with apples, it's not green trees, it's not growth. So in Foster, we have so much... Um, green and it's all about growth and it's springtime moving into summer here we are in the fall clearly and then the trees themselves are being stripped and they are bare so you have this sense not of burgeoning spring and not of kind of the fecundity of of the harvest and and the summer and all of that kind of um, richness in fact we have this this stripping down um, and this kind of moving toward something that is very dire, you know, something that is akin to death, essentially. Okay, um, and then we are going to bump down to the first sentence of the next paragraph. The people, for the most part, unhappily endured the weather. So we have um, the people are unhappily enduring the weather. And then we're going to move to the next page where we see the introduction of Bill uh, Furlong. Down in the yard, Bill Furlong, the cold and timber merchant, rubbed his hands saying if things carried on as they were, they would soon need a new set of tires for the lorry. So we have this Bill Furlong. He's the first person we are meeting. Is that true? I think that's true. Yeah, he's the first person we're meeting by name. So um, I was very happy that Claire Keegan um, offered up the town of New Ross because in fact, the town of New Ross exists in Ireland. So um, you can see these pictures. I'll flash them up right now. If you're on YouTube, you are seeing the town of New Ross. Um, I pictured it 
on the coast because they were talking about the keys and they were talking about the 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 um, you know the sailors coming in and bringing the coal and the timber and the anthracite. Uh, in fact, it's on the River Barrow, so it's on a river, um, but it is relatively co close to the coast, uh, and it is a very sort of um, bustling not a seaport town, but like a port town. Okay, so what is important here to look at is this idea, well, there are lots of things that are important, but what I wanna take a look at now is the narrative stance. So this is very firmly a third person narrator. What we have here, um, you know, a, a sentence like, in October, there were yellow trees. It's, it's, it's very kind of abstract. We don't know who is telling us this story. It's this kind of godlike figure. So when you think of omniscience, um, you know, it's omni and then science. So it's sort of being aware of everything, omni being everything and science sort of being like sentient. So you have this idea of, of, of something that a force that knows everything. I will say it again, I mentioned this at one point, I had a writing teacher who believed that you could only write in the third person really write in a really good omniscient narrative voice if you believed in God, which I don't actually think that is true. Um, but you have a sense here of this sort of omniscient, omnipotent, um, all-knowing narrator from the beginning. But almost from that first sentence, when we have, then the clocks went back the hour and the long November winds came in and blew and stripped the trees bare. And then certainly when we get to this next part, uh, Bill Furlong, was saying, if things carried on as they were, they would soon need a new set of tires for the lorry. So quickly we are moving in this really seamless, beautiful way that I think as the reader you may not have even clocked, you move from this omniscient narrator who is this kind of all-knowing godlike force that is this kind of anonymous authority figure, sounds a lot like God, um, and then we're moving pretty quickly into this um, sort of closer uh, proximity with Bill Furlong. So it, it's very subtle again, but it says right here, um, down in the yard, Bill Furlong, the coal and timber merchant. So we're, we're got, getting some information about him still. The camera's kind of way back. We're still seeing this as like a very third person thing. We don't know who Bill Furlong is. We're given both his first and last name. We're given his occupation. So we're still kind of far away from him. Then we're coming in much closer um, where it says rubbed his hands. So we're getting this kind of intimate thing. We know that he's maybe cold. Um, we're seeing this gesture that's a very subtle gesture. So we know we're meant to pay a lot of attention to what is going to happen with him saying, if things carried on as they were, they would soon need a new set of tires for the lorry. So this is symbolic. Later on, he says something about the engine failing. Um, it's very, um, it's well, we're going to get to the symbolism of Bill Furlong being the coal merchant um, and the engine of his truck failing. We're going to get to that in a bit. But you have um, essentially what are his words. So if things carried on as they were, they would soon need a new set of tires for the lorry. That's like you can hear him saying, if things carry on the way they are, we're going to need a new set of tires for the lorry. There, there's a, a sense of, of us like it's still a third person. It's still very firmly third person. It's not that Bill is saying this in quotation marks or it's I said, blah, blah, blah. But we have this sense of kind of um, becoming one with him and hearing his voice in a way that's very significant. Okay, we're going to look a little bit more at this um, at, at this really beautiful narrator that's getting very close. It's kind of a close third person in the sense that we are very close to what Bill is thinking and feeling. So across, um, across the way here on page three, during busy times like these, Furlong made most of the deliveries himself, 
leaving the yardmen to bag up the next orders and cut and split the loads of felled trees the farmers brought in. Through the mornings, the saws and shovels could be heard going hard at it, but when the Angelus bell rang at noon, the men laid down their tools, washed the black off their hands, and went round to Kehoe's, where they were fed hot dinners with soup and fish and chips on Fridays. Furlong, so he's being addressed by his last name. So on some level, we are keeping a distance from him. Um, it, it's, it's, it's still this third person narrator that is distanced. He made most of the deliveries himself, leaving the yardmen to, so he leaving the yardmen behind. So this idea of um, him going off by himself, we we know on some level that we're going to stay with him because he's leaving the yardmen behind. So basically, we are going to be close with him. We're going to be seeing what he's seeing, um, going the places he's going, and not sticking around with the yardmen who are doing their thing. But it gets very kind of intimate in some ways because when he says through when the narrator says through the mornings the saws and shovels could be heard and that is so beautiful because the saws you get the saws sounds very much like the noise a saw would make and shovel is i mean listen to that shovel it's like exactly the noise that the shovel would be making um when it's you know shoveling up that i hope that isn't hurting people's ears I'm wondering if i'm saying that really loud into um your poor ears if you're listening on some sort of headphones um but it's very onomatopoetic here. And I love that because what she is doing is she's giving us the sounds that Bill Furlong is hearing. So we are hearing the same sounds that he is hearing. Um, through the mornings, the saws and shovels could be heard going hard at it. So this is another one of those little phrases, going hard at it is a colloquial phrase that we presume is Bill's voice. It's a little bit like when we first saw um, on the, the very, very opening um, about the clocks went back the hour. The clocks went back the hour is, to my mind, has somewhat of, a, of an unusual ring. It feels very Irish. Um, it also, I mean, time and things getting darker. Whenever you hear time, whenever time comes up um, in a novel, you should be thinking about time passing. You should be thinking about death. It's uh, not up, uh, you know, not uplifting, but it is very much uh, one of the things that this novel is preoccupied with. So this idea of going hard at it, it is a phrase that I think we should identify as bills. And again, reinforces this idea that yes, we have this third person uh, narrator, but that a lot of the time it's going to be a close third and we're gonna be like right in, uh, sort of in Bill's head as it were. Okay, um, and when the Angelus bell rang at noon, so that is also assuming that we understand what the Angelus bell is. Um, I did not know. Uh, I, I picked this up, didn't even research it. I picked it up from this trusty gem of a novella. I believe it rings at 12 and six, at least. We hear it ring at 12 and six. And in fact, the second time when it rings at six o'clock, um, it was confusing to me because then all the men like went home or something. And I was like, wait, why are they going home at noon? Um, but there is something very flattering that's happening here, which is that our narrator slash Bill our narrator slash Bill is totally trusting the fact that we, as the reader, know what the Angelus Bell is. So um, if you don't know what that is, you are sort of flattered that like somebody might think that you would know that. And you have enough context clues here because he says when the Angelus Bell rang at noon, you know it's some sort of bell. And from from you know the word Angelus, this looks a lot like the word angel, um, and also like 
oh, I was going to say Adustus Fidelis or whatever that, there's a Latin, that really beautiful Latin, I think it's a Christmas carol. Um, but, you know, Angelus to me sounds like some sort of Latin hymn that you might be singing if you're Catholic. So this idea of, of the Angelus bell ringing, you do, you know, I, th I would think most readers would understand that this is in Ireland, some sort of a Catholic bell, a church bell that is ringing at noon, it's going to ring again at six. Um, and when it does, the men um, do this thing where they laid down their tools, washed the black off their hands. So washing the black off their hands, I mean, there's a lot of, um, you know, sort of hand washing um, that, and a lot of hand wringing actually on Bill's part. But this idea of washing, you know, washing yourself clean is something uh, that, that should be a central preoccupation, not central, it should be a minor preoccupation throughout the work because a lot of this is Bill's sort of internal turmoil about whether or not he is going um, to, to, to sort of uh, allow this kind of blackness to stay, um, you know, on his hands, the blackness of the reality that he discovers. Okay, and then they went round to Quijos. So went round to Quijos, even that to me sounds a bit like, um, you know, Bill's kind of voice, the way he might describe that, like we went round to Quijos, um, where they were fed hot dinners with soup and fish and chips on Fridays. So again, we're reinforcing these two ideas. This is information that Bill knows. So we know that Bill, you know, Bill would know this well because Bill in fact is, is going often with these men for their hot dinners dinner, of course, here being lunch, the noontime meal. Um, and fish and chips on Fridays, of course, is because they are Catholic. So they don't eat meat on Fridays. So you would have fish and chips on Fridays. But that kind of insider information, whether or not you as a reader are registering it, that is um, like allowing you to know that this is information um, that is being provided to us from Bill. So another thing's happening here, and it's really beautiful, which is that Bill is... Um, I was going to say like a little bit of like a pastor, but I don't really mean that. What I mean is pastor. Just kidding. But what I mean is shepherd. And pastor to me in Spanish sounds a little more like shepherd. So maybe that's why I was thinking pastor. He he feels to me like a shepherd in the best sense. So, um, and in fact, I think you can argue in lots of ways that Bill is sort of a Christ figure. But this idea of Christ as being, um, you know, a shepherd... Um, he is he's taking care of the men and in fact he's taking care of lots of people he's taking care of his family his girls in this case right from the very beginning the end of the first chapter we have this idea of him as taking care of the men he's doing a lot of the deliveries himself they're doing the work they're having the warm meal um, and, and he's watching over them a little bit like you would watch over your flock as it were okay and then we're gonna look um, at page five so this is <laughs> I mean, here we are, God, you know, many minutes into this lecture and we're only on page five, but this is the kind of careful, close reading that will just really reap all sorts of reward as you are moving through the novel because you'll just get so much more out of it. So on page five, beginning of chapter two, we have this. Furlong had come from nothing, less than nothing, some might say. His mother at the age of 16 had fallen pregnant while working as a domestic for Mrs. Wilson, the Protestant widow who lived in the big house a few miles out of town. So this idea, um, the very first sentence here again feels pretty omniscient. Furlong had come from nothing. So part of that's because we have, again, this use of his last name only, but Furlong had come from nothing. And it, it's, it's this idea of the camera pulling way back and, and this notion of like, he, uh, this man, this man who we are seeing from a distance because we're calling him by his last name, came from nothing. But then again, we shift into this more intimate kind of tone where 
less than nothing, some might say. So that's something that you could hear Bill saying in all of his humility, all of his Christ-like humility. Um, but, but you also could hear this as a kind of a rumor. And I like the idea of, is it, of it as being a rumor because you have this kind of um, this notion of a lot of rumors that are, that are spinning around this town. Um, and then we have kind of like the facts. His mother at the age of 16 had fallen pregnant. So fallen pregnant, um, I'm sure that that's an Irish colloquialism, but again, it's getting us closer to Bill's language, to Furlong's language, um, because it is colloquial. While working as a domestic, and again, um, you know, it's not a servant, or I mean, I guess you would say domestic if you're Mrs. Wilson too. But when he gets to um, Mrs. Wilson, the Protestant widow who lived in the big house, she wouldn't necessarily describe herself. She wouldn't have to say Protestant because everybody would already know that about her. Um, and the idea of who lived in the big house, um, it's not the big house, I made it sound like jail, um, but who lived in the big house a few miles out of town, the idea there of, um, of the big house as being described as the big house is alluding to the fact, again, that, that we are seeing this from Bill's perspective. You know, maybe to Mrs. Wilson, this seems like any other house. I was so impressed in my second reading by how subtle and yet so effective and really very clear the, the, the sort of social stratification is throughout this book. We are spending most of our time here um, with people like poor Mick Sinnott and his little boy, who Mick Sinnott clearly has a drinking problem and his little boy is fetching sticks and like looking for, you know, food and, and warmth um, because they have fallen on hard times. And you get a sense of a lot of people being unemployed and this sense of everyone being in debt and, and, and of real poverty. But there also are these allusions to people like Mrs. Wilson living in big houses, or um, there's that beautiful part toward the end of the novel where Bill Furlong is walking past at night, walking past the windows of the fancier houses. So you have this sense of social stratification that, again, is very subtle, but is very important because really it is the, um, it's the poverty-stricken people who are really, uh, you know, it's the people in need, the people who are suffering, who are really the heart of this novel. Okay, dive into figurative language. What I find is that she has, I mean, again, this is why you need to read these books more than once or twice, um, is because you really begin to appreciate how just incredibly subtle, but incredibly well done, um, you know, all of her figurative languages. So we're gonna be talking about symbolism. We're gonna be talking about mirrors and reflection in particular. We're gonna talk about liminal spaces. And I think that is it which is a lot. Okay, so just in terms of symbolism, I'm gonna just run through a few of the things that are highly symbolic. So um, one of the things we talk about at the Foxed page is that um, it's fine to be like, oh wait, hey, this tree is symbolic of the Garden of Eden and these people are, you know, recognizing that they are flawed and, and whatever, you know, damaged or naked or however you wanna think about it. Um, but it's really good to then say like, so what? So you can identify these things as symbols, but it's good then to take one step further and think like, what is it that this person, what is this author trying to do with this symbol? So um, it's very symbolic that Bill Furlong is in fact warming the community. So he's a coal delivery man, which could be kind of, you know, there are lots of different ways that that could go. You know, you could talk about, um, you know, darkness or dirtiness or, you know, there are all sorts of different things that you could do. But what becomes very clear is that he is very generously um, supporting everyone in a way that's very foundational. I mean, people need to be warm. 
you know, it's just, especially in, in the dead of winter and it's really, I mean, things are very, it's not the dead of winter. What am I saying? But it's December. So it's very cold. Um, so this idea that he's warming the community is important. In a book where there aren't a lot of details, when you were given a specific detail, it's important to be like, oh, wait, it's not just a jigsaw puzzle. Um, it is a jigsaw puzzle of a farm. So you have this sense of him having all of these different pieces as a child. I mean, you know, he doesn't know who his father is. He's really trying to figure out a lot about his, his sort of upbringing. His mother dies. He's trying to figure out his place in the world. So you have this kind of jigsaw puzzle that he is trying to piece together of his life and it's also of a farm so you have this sense of of wanting you know a certain life wanting a certain kind of bucolic kind of pastoral kind of um you know like idyllic kind of way of life and we are at a point in ireland it's 1985 where um we, and this is mentioned clearly in the book that that there is a real economic downturn so in 19 i believe in 1980 the unemployment rate was 7%, and in 1990, it was 17%. So you're having this major economic downturn when a lot of the ways that Irish people were surviving were not viable anymore. So you have this sense of him sort of wanting to go back to this time when you could be, uh, you know, you could live as a farmer. Um, okay, again, I, I mentioned this before, but there is a part on page uh, 94 when he says something about the engine was giving out. So you have this idea of the truck and the tires and this truck sort of, you know, the engine of the truck, which he he is very much reliant upon the truck. And in some ways he kind of is the truck, you know, he's using the truck to drive around and warm people. He's also using it to discover the nefarious things that are happening in town. Um, so you have this sense of the engine, the engine of this warmth and generosity is beginning to give out. So, um, and the tires are wearing, I mean, this is a guy who is fatigued um, and the fatigue, actually, there's a lot of, of that too, that is discussed. Um, the black and white tiles and black and white in general as a motif are, it's a very important motif. A motif is just, um, you know, like a kind of a set of symbols that keeps recurring throughout the course of a uh, piece of literature. Black and white was very important in um, in Foster. And part of that is because our, our narrator in there, who is like a nine or 10 year old, she is so young that she's seeing things in very black and white terms. I think in this book, a lot of the black and white stuff that is happening has to do um, with this very Manichaean, Manichaean is just like a, um, the, the idea of good and evil or of good and, and yeah, good and evil and black and white. Like things are very, um, there's no gray area. Things are either one way or they're another. Um, so there, there is this real sense of black and of things being black and white and this black and white motif comes up again and again when he's tiny, he's in the, the kitchen at Mrs. Wilson's house. And, um, he, he realizes the floor are, it's checkered, you know, with these black and white checkers. And there's this beautifully symbolic line about how, when he's little, he just recognizes their black and white squares. And at some point he realizes it's like a drafts board, which is like checkers and realizes that, that essentially life is about either taking the other piece or being taken. So again, you have this reinforcement of this real sort of zero-sum game, this like idea of, of, of things being black or white. You're either good or evil. You're either fallen or you're virtuous. You're either Catholic or you're not. I mean, there's, there's, it's everything is very sort of black and white in lots of ways. And we see that black and white motif again and again. Um, 
At Kehoe's in the end, he receives a piece of advice from Mrs. Kehoe, and it is a reinforcement of, of, you know, complicity and silence. And he looks down on the ground, and there are these black interlocking rings um, on the on the ground. Uh, I mean, on the on the carpet of her place, which is so funny. I was like, oh gosh, Mrs. Kehoe's like restaurant is carpeted, which, which restaurants that are carpeted just it never makes a lot of sense to me. It always seems kind of gross. Anyway, um, he looks down and he sees this black, these black interlocking rings and it's not against white, but it kind of evokes that first floor where you did have those black and white uh, squares. Um, we also, um, it, th with this white and black uh, theme, you have a lot about the darkness of the river. The river is always very dark, dark, dark. Um, dark is stout, it's, which is very dark, a very dark beer. And you have the innocence and kind of the, the, the cleanliness of the snow that is falling. So you have, even in nature, things tend to be black and white. Um, we also have um, the river itself which at one point Bill is kind of jealous of the, of the, um, I keep calling him Bill. Maybe I should call him Furlong, but you know, I feel, I feel like I know him really well. Um, he's jealous of the river because it's this idea that the river knows her course. So, um, it's this sense that the river is just flowing. The river is doing what the river does, whereas he has a lot of, uh, choices and he has some difficult choices to make. We also have the black and white motif reinforced with the birds. So there are lots of crows. In fact, one of the beautiful opening lines, uh, Claire Keegan's opening lines and closing lines of each chapter are unbelievably great. But it, I think the line is like, it was a December of crows. And then like people had never seen so many or something like that. So you have this proliferation of the crows and crows are pretty menacing. We have a lot of them. It seems like we have more and more all the time. And um, we have a lot of them right now in California near our house. And, and they're big and kind of menacing looking. And, um, you know, the, the noises that they make are really loud and, and really kind of commanding. So you have this sense of, of them as being kind of foreboding. It's a little bit of like a harbinger of, of something bad. It's kind of like a black cat. Um, but he also very specifically says at one point um, when he's watching them strut along that one of them looks like one of the abbots from the abbey, one of the men with his hands behind his back kind of strutting along, which you can see that very bird-like feel. And the black and white of these crows also is meant, I believe, to um, have us think of the nuns, you know, with their black habits with the white. So a lot of this black and white stuff is, is tied back to the nuns and the monks, um, and the abbots, monks, I think that's right. Um, but you have them in these in these dark, like black and white kind of clothing. And also very much because their thinking is so black and white, things are either a sin or they're virtuous. There's not, not a lot of middle ground. Um, okay, we also have the symbolic um, uh, presence of a lot of locks, a lot of padlocks, a lot of frozen locks. He's having to thaw the locks. So you have a lot of um, th this real sense of him as being locked out, but these idea of locks as being very uh, important throughout the whole entire book. Um, and then, oh my gosh, well, oh, I can't talk about, I'm not going to talk about this. There is a, the Christmas present. I'll leave it at this. The Christmas present that he buys for his wife at the end becomes very symbolic. I'm not going to tell you why. Okay. And then, um, the names are very symbolic as well. So we have Bill. 
so bill, you know, there's a lot of concern about debt. So you have this idea of a bill and a bill as being needing to be paid. But also he is named William. Um, he is named William after the kings is what they say in the book because it's not an Irish name, it's an English name. So you have this idea of him as sort of, you know, being born in this, in the big house um, and being raised in a, in, you know, he's raised clearly by a Catholic mother, but raised, you know, with a, with a lot of influence from a woman who is Protestant. And he's given an English name, not in fact an Irish name. Of course, he goes by Bill, which and Billy at times the um, the the mother superior, which is another name that is very symbolic. Um, this mother superior who has all this authority, uh, you know, that name like your mother is already is already sort of symbolic enough. Uh, and you know, he has these substitute mothers, Mrs. Wilson, but also you know he calls. Mother Superior Mother again and again and again. So you have this idea of of this substitute mother and this woman who is wielding authority over many, many people. Um, in fact, she thinks she's very superior. She acts very superior. And in terms of the Catholic hierarchy, obviously she is very superior. Uh, but you have, um, I totally lost my train of thought here. Oh, the names. So you have his name, Bill, um, which is both William and Bill, as in like what is owing. And then you also, um, his last name is Furlong, so you have this idea of racing, um, you know, it's a, like a distance in a race track. So you have the idea of, of that, but you also have this sense of like, not for long. Like I, I have this sense of for long, um, you know, as being sort of a temporal thing and, and sort of like he's maybe, you know, his life is going to be short. He's acutely aware of time passing of his girls growing older. And he has this decision to make about whether he's going to remain complicit or whether he is going, um, you know, to do the right heroic thing. Okay, great. So um, we, boy, I mean, I could go on and on actually um, about the names, but we're not gonna not gonna dig in much further than that. Oh, although I will say Eileen. Um, so Eileen is his wife, and Eileen uh, is leaning in lots of ways toward the Catholic Church and is not kind of leaning in the direction of her husband. Um, and he, she's wanting him to lean in her direction. So there's a lot of sort of Eileen going on there. You have this sense, even from when he was very small, that he's looking for himself in, in, in many places. He's looking for himself in reflection. And in fact, the question of who his father is, is really sort of brought to the fore at one point when he's looking, he's at the barbershop and he's looking for vestiges of, of certain people in his face. So he's, he's looking at his own reflection in order to find out who he is, like literally find out who his father might be. So you have this sense of, of reflection as being very important. Um, at one point when he is in um, the, the convent, he sees himself reflected in all of the, the shiny pots and pans, and, and he's reflected in windows, he's reflected in all sorts of surfaces. And you get this sense, um, you know, as the, as the novel is kind of rolling along, whenever someone is looking in surfaces like that, again, you need to step back a little and say, okay, this is clearly symbolic, we're looking at ourselves here. And it's, it's this question of sort of what is the person looking for? In, in this case, is he looking for a certain resemblance? Or is it that he is wrestling with his conscience because he wants uh, you know, the reflection that is reflected back to him to be um, congruent with who he is and what he feels? So one of the main things in the book that we have touched on is this idea of complicity and this idea of everyone keeping silent about something that is happening. 
And when I say that, I'm not spoiling anything because literally on the back cover, they, they talk about that. Something is happening and Bill discovers something. And the question is, you know, is he going to stay complicit or is he going um, to, to, to sort of report this? And is he going to try to make some sort of change? So every time he sees himself in a reflective surface, you have this sense that he's, he's sort of um, both trying to figure out who he is and sort of like what type of person is he going to be? And um, it's really beautiful because that crystallizes at the very end of the book and on page 113, again, the penultimate page of the book, he asks himself this, was it possible to carry on along through all the years, the decades, through an entire life without once being brave enough to go against what was there and yet call yourself a Christian and face yourself in the mirror? very clear why we have this preoccupation with mirrors and why there are so many mirrors. And it is, in fact, because he needs to know if he can face himself, if he can um, feel good enough about himself as a person, um, you know, to, to sort of move forward in life. It's really, it's just a beautiful um, series, these reflections, a beautiful series of different uh, symbolism moments that are very important. Um, in addition to this idea of, of these mirrors as reflecting him, another kind of um, use of figurative language that we have throughout the entire novel is something called liminal spaces. So we have lots and lots of these liminal spaces. So liminal spaces is simply a, um, I mean, I really love it as a term because it helps, it's one of those terms that helps define something for you. Um, whenever you see a, a character in a doorway or in a passageway or a hallway or on steps, you know, front steps or back steps, or when you see someone who's in, um, you know, a, a place of, of flux, even an airport or a bus station, um, that is a time often when people are confronted uh, with the possibility of change. And um, boy, Bill Furlong is constantly in these liminal spaces. At one point, Claire Keegan in one of the interviews said something like, um, you know, he's a man who's often in doorways. And it's it's true and he's often in doorways that are very contentious and difficult or very like seductive and kind of uh you know luring him in but you have this idea of of him as as really being making a lot of choices and and being um you know he's not stagnant and in one space he's constantly moving in and out of worlds and out of spaces so you have this really beautiful um this this chance and you know liminal spaces are really very much about a chance to to evolve and in fact um he he you know over the course of the book that is the main preoccupation is whether or not he is going to evolve and be someone who can look himself in the mirror um you know if he can sort of pass through these places and do the the thing that is kind of heroic um so we're going to look at page 61 there are also a lot of locked doors that he is running into um, and, and a lot of, again, a lot of frozen locks. So these are situations where the, the idea of him as being barred from something, or it's really driving home the idea of complicity and the idea of everyone else being quiet and this idea of, of sort of whether or not he's going to kind of bust through these spaces, see what is there to be seen, and then actually do something about it. Um, so this is on page 61. The bolt was stiff with frost, and he had to ask himself if he had not turned into a man consigned to doorways. Um, the, the idea of the kettle, when he goes and gets the kettle to run the hot water over the lock, you get this sense of, of really how frigid and how cold and how um, foreboding all of this kind of weather is. But it's also very symbolic in the sense that everything is sort of frozen over and, and stiff and unyielding. 
in a way um, that, that amplifies his kind of paralysis. Um, by the way, quick quick note, um, paralysis is, so James Joyce, who was a very important um, Irish writer around the turn of the 20th century, he, interestingly, he only wrote about Dublin, um, but he didn't, he was very much not um, a fan of the idea of the Irish Renaissance, meaning the Irish language and, and being sort of very proud of being like a native Irish person. He left Ireland um, again, right around the time of um, the, the independence. He moved to Paris. He didn't come back. Um, he had children that he named Italian names because he was so kind of um, unhappy with Ireland and yet deeply nostalgic about Ireland. Um, so, so he left the UK, spent a lot of time in Paris, a lot of time in Italy. Um, but, but you have this sense of him um, as always being preoccupied with paralysis. And one of his very best stories, I think it's the best thing he's ever written, which is called The Dead. It's at the end of Dubliners. It is a novella, I believe. It's usually packaged, well, it's part of Dubliners, so it's the last story. It's a kind of a longish short story at the end of Dubliners. But it, it's it's um, a, a story around Christmas time and there is snow falling and you have someone in it who is very, um, who is, is, is suffering actually a lot of the same paralysis that we have with Bill Furlong here. And it's a really beautiful, beautiful story. And it's, it's very hard not to see the resonance between the two of them simply because of the snowfall um, and this idea of snow um, as, as sort of muffling and, and, um, and uh, you know, covering over things. Okay, but it's interesting that there are women who are, are talking to him. He has these important conversations about sort of like, what do you know? Like, and shouldn't we be doing something about it? And, and it really helps you understand the perspective and why people are, are, are being quiet. A lot is at stake here. And um, both of these, both of these uh, female forces, his wife Eileen and Mrs. Kehoe, who is another kind of maternal figure because she's providing food for all of the um, the workers. You know, she's very kind of nurturing and, and takes care of them in some ways. Um, but, but both of those kind of like the main maternal figures in some ways, the, the mother superior is like the least maternal person in the book. Um, but you have these two women as, as trying to convince him of everything that is at stake. So you're going to need to read the book yourself to read more about complicity. Um, but you also, if you just think about Catholicism, you know, when you're confessing your sins, it's it's behind this literal, like, shroud, um, you know, behind a closed door. It's only the priest who hears. Presumably the priest is not sharing any of your secrets. So it's a very, um, like, secret intensive kind of religion and this idea that things should be unspoken and that things um, need to follow certain uh, protocols and that you need to sort of, you know, got to say, say your Hail Marys and, and expunge yourself of the sin, but that it is all in secret. A lot of stuff is, is kept kind of, you know, on the down low, as it were. But what I do want to talk about um, briefly is the importance of these strong women. So um, I always, I mean, part of me is always reading texts, you know, it, it, like with this idea of like, is this a feminist text in mind? It's always kind of in the back of my head. And I really loved the way here that Claire Keegan talks about the strength of these women in these really kind of orthogonal um, ways. It's not, it's not heavy handed and it's things that Bill is observing, but, but it's, um, it's also a real testament, in fact, to how powerful these women are. So um, we're gonna look at pages 24 and 25. So this is when um, Bill and his wife Eileen are with all of the girls and they're writing the letters and it's this very beautiful scene. Um, they're, they're making the Christmas cake and the girls are writing their letters to Santa Claus. 
So, and, and this is right when Bill has been thinking about the puzzle that he didn't get and how he didn't get either of the things that he wanted from Santa Claus. Did Santa ever come to you, Daddy? Sheila now asked, eerily. They could be like young witches sometimes, his daughters, with their black hair and sharp eyes. It was easy to understand why women feared men with their physical strength and lust and social powers. But women, with their canny intuitions, were so much deeper. They could predict what was to come long before it came, dream it overnight, and read your mind. So you have this real sense of women as being uncanny in this very powerful way. And this idea that they could predict things actually does happen. So at one point, Eileen has this dream about one of the girls having a rotten tooth and having to pull the rotten tooth out. And sure enough, they go to the dentist and um, they find out later that the, that the girl has um, this rotten tooth that needs to be pulled. And it's very subtle and it's very quick. If you've already read the book, maybe you didn't even pick up on that. But it is this sense of, of women as being very sort of um, powerful and, in fact, very witchy. There's a lot of witch stuff happening here. There's black cats. Um, there's sort of uh, there's a curse that is put on the river. Um, th there's a lot of sort of um, witch stuff that's happening, which is very important. Which, which is a very important, um, because there is a, um, a lot of attention paid here to superstition. And I kind of loved this because what happens is the superstitious idea, like the people in the town are like, wait, it's so cold. Maybe this means something. Like it has to mean something that the weather is so terrible. You have this sense of, um, of, of superstition as being kind of on the same level as Catholicism. Like the religious stuff in the book kind of feels on some level like it is the same as superstition, which is really, really beautifully done. It's subtle, again, but it is definitely there. There's a lot of superstitious things happening. Um, okay, and, and he goes on then to say, he'd had moments in his marriage when he'd almost feared Eileen and had envied her metal, her red-hot instincts. So you do have this sense of, 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 of women as being very powerful and very capable and, and having this, you know, he says it right here, her metal, her red hot instincts. So you have this idea of, of um, you know, power that this woman has. Um, we're going to look at page 99. So this is when he's talking to Mrs. Kehoe and he's talking actually about the, um, about the nuns up at the convent. He stood back and faced her. I mean, she's like a formidable foe here. You know, he has to like stand back and face her because he's really like, she's confronting him and he's really needing to like face up to her power, literally face up to it. Surely they've only as much power as we give them, Mrs. Kehoe. I wouldn't be too sure. She paused then and looked at him the way hugely practical women sometimes looked at men, as though they weren't men at all, but foolish boys. More than once, maybe more than several times, Eileen had done the same. So again, you have this idea of Bill as being very cognizant and very clear about the fact that these very powerful women kind of take pity on him. Like he just like doesn't understand, which is very important because again, the complicity that these women are a party to, the stakes are very high. I mean, it is, it's a very interesting uh, kind of like, like a, you know, thought, what is that called? A thought process? No, no, um, a thought question. Oh my God, it's going to come to me. Um, a thought experiment. 
So it's it's a very interesting thought experiment as you are reading through the book to sort of feel like, oh my God, of course Bill has to do this thing. And then you're like, oh, but wait, like the, the, the stakes are high here. So you have this beautiful way that, that um, and very subtle way that, that as the reader, you are coming to appreciate all that is at stake because the women are very, um, again, hugely practical. I love that phrase. Um, she paused then and looked at him the way hugely practical women sometimes looked at men as though they weren't men at all, but foolish boys. So good, so good. Why Why is this being told now? Why is she choosing to have it be in December? Why is there this preoccupation with Christmas? Well, I mean, partially because it's a Catholic, uh, you know, novel. So it, it, it is very helpful in terms of underscoring a lot of the religious stuff that is happening here. But it's it's more, more um, sort of importantly, is this idea of, of the children and their experience of Christmas. So you have both, um, it's this idea of this childhood fantasy and Christmas is so important and so foundational to so many little kids. And we know, um, you know, we saw one of the very clear flashbacks to Bill's childhood is his memory of Christmas. And it's so sad and disappointing. So you have this sense of the importance of Christmas to children, um, but, we also have this really um, interesting kind of interplay where his youngest daughter, I think Loretta maybe is her name, she's scared of Santa Claus. And you know, lots of kids are scared of Santa Claus. And so you have this sense of, of, of this childhood fantasy. God, someone just like slammed a door here. I don't know if you just saw me jump. Whew. I am what's called a highly sensitive person. I'm just constantly like screaming and jumping when things are happening around me. So if you're watching the YouTube and you saw me jump just now, Everything's okay. Um, so you have this kind of childhood, um, you know, fantasy that's happening. But in fact, there it's very problematic. So one of the things is that it's really a little creepy. You know, lots of kids don't like to sit on Santa's lap. And, and little Loretta is, you know, like really having some fears about adults that are pretty well-founded. Um, and this kind of, this very young child kind of reaction to the unknown and and, and to, to sort of Santa in, in, you know, in all of his shapes and sizes and so there's this whole kind of conspiracy about keeping secrets and about keeping um you know like these kind of uh traditions and these sorts of things going and not telling children the truth so you know in in the case of santa claus for the most part it's very uh you know it's very like uh kind it's fine although i really hated it I just really didn't like this. When people would use Santa Claus as like a bargaining chip, like when parents, when my kids were little, they, you know, or other people in their lives would be like, oh, you better be good, or Santa's not gonna bring you anything, or oh, you're gonna get coal in your stocking. I mean, that really bothered me. Really, really, really uh, was not my favorite thing. But you have all of this complicity that is happening. And of course, you have to make that next leap to the, um, you know, they're being complicit. The adults are being complicit and not telling the children that Santa Claus is not real. Um, and lots of people, and so they're also, sorry, uh, they're also being um, complicit about this thing that everybody sort of knows is happening. Interestingly, you get the sense that all the women know that this is happening and none of the men seem to know that this is happening. And I don't think anybody really understands, um, you know, when Bill finally makes his discovery, you understand how grave the whole thing actually is. But you have this sense of, of adults as being complicit in this much kind of, um, you know, in this, in this kind of yuck thing that's happening in the town. 
And in fact, you read in the afterward that it was this atrocious, you know, and very, very large scale thing being perpetrated by the church and by the, the Republic of Ireland. So you, you have this very, very large scale thing that a lot of adults are complicit in. And it is very resonant with the idea of everybody being complicit about uh, about Santa. So you have these kinds of, um, you know, this whole question of Christmas. It's not just nostalgic. You know, it, in fact, it doesn't feel very nostalgic. It's kind of ominous in some ways. Um, you, you have this like uh, this double complicity. And um, I'm going to argue that in fact, you know, you can take this one step further. There's that that sort of argument that people make of like, oh, you know, you believe in the tooth fairy and you believe in Santa Claus and you believe in the Easter bunny and you believe in God. And then people are like, oh, no, the tooth fairy is not real. And oh, wait, no, Santa's not real. And uh, no, the Easter bunny doesn't exist. But God, yes, God is God's out there. So I don't mean to offend people who have a lot of faith, uh, but I but I do think that a lot of the the, the sort of um, y y you know a lot of a lot of the questions that young children have about religion and about heaven and about God and Christ, um, you know, all of that stuff um, really you know there's some similarities between uh, the sort of the leap of faith, as it were, that you have to have to believe in Santa that you also need to have uh, to believe in these like very specific religious uh, tales that we all have learned. Okay, it's not quite this Bill who is going to be this very heroic figure who's going to sort of resurrect all of these people who um, have been ill-treated by the church. It's not quite that, which I think is, it's good that it's not that because it's more subtle, but you do have this sense that, that Christmas, you know, the person Christmas being obviously the birth of Christ is very tied with this idea of, of um, you know, resurrection and this idea of rebirth, because, you know, if we believe that Jesus is, is, you know, God's incarnation on earth and he was sent here in order to die and absolve us of our sins and to, you know, whatever, rise up and, and like allow us all to follow him to heaven. I mean, wow, I'm not religious, so I don't know if I maybe just butchered that. But, um, you know, you have this sense of Christmas as being tied very much to this idea of rebirth. So, um, and heroism and self-sacrifice. So what you have here is Bill, who is very much um, in this kind of Christ-like position. And again, I'm not going to spoil things for you, but you do have this, this sense of, you know, if you finish the book, you do have a sense of whether or not he decided to sort of take on that role. And the other thing that I will say, um, this this is kind of, uh, I think it's very significant and it's really beautiful, is that um, the name of that character, Enda, who we meet later in the novella, um, Enda, this idea of, of being like a bird, it also is, um, it, it's somebody who brings renewal. So it's a renewer. And beautifully, beautifully in Foster, the, the mother, um, who is in who is in the home with the little girl is named Enda. So you have this idea of of her as being a renewer. She really um, really sort of renews this young child. She has this this power and this love and this generosity and warmth to to sort of you know provide something like a rebirth or, and renewal for this child. And in this case, we have this idea of Enda, who is this um, you know this person we meet later in the novel. Um, we have this idea of, of of she and Bill both as as being together in this idea of renewal. Again, super subtle. You probably um, I don't know unless you did some real sleuthing and some 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 googling, or maybe you speak fluent Irish and you knew that. But uh, Enda, 
means not only like a bird, but it also means uh, a redeemer or a renewer. So it's this, it's this beautiful resonance that you have in both of the novellas. It's so strong and it is so beautiful. Um, I wanted to read the very, very end of the book about Christmas, but I'm not going to do that because I decided in the beginning that I was not going to, uh, uh, wasn't going to spoil anything for you if you have not already read the book. If you have, I think I've given you plenty of fodder and plenty of direction. I've pointed you in plenty of directions so that if you've already listened um, or if you've already read the book, then you will be, uh, you know, it's pretty clear all of my messages uh, that I'm that I'm beaming to you across the, the airwaves. Um, I just found this book so beautiful and so complicated and so rich and really, really uh, rewarding. And so I cannot, if you haven't read it yet, oh my God, you are in for a treat. I would highly recommend rereading it or listening. So if you've read it before, maybe go back and listen to it on Audible. You don't have to listen to the whole thing. It's so beautiful to hear the um, the accents and to really just revel in this incredible prose. And I like to think that after you have uh, listened to this little lecture, that you will have an even richer understanding of Claire Keegan and just how absolutely masterful this novella really is. So. Um, once you're done listening to that, uh, you can head back to the Foxed page and find another uh, lecture to listen to. And thank you so much for spending the time. I really, really love uh, diving in with you all. So happy reading. 